Welcome, everyone, to the Becker's Healthcare Podcast. I'm Brian Zimmerman, and today I'll be joined by Dr. Christina Dieter, MD, MBA, Specialty Medical Officer for Pediatric Critical Care Medicine with the Pediatrics Medical Group. She's also the Vice Chair of Pediatrics at Renowned Children's Hospital in Reno, Nevada, and she's also an Associate Professor at the University of Nevada, Reno. Dr. Dieter, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. So today we're going to discuss how the pandemic has really affected pediatric care. And, and, and the first question I have for you, Dr. Dieter, is just if you can talk about, uh, pretty broadly here, how COVID has had, had an impact on kids, teachers, and, and really think about schools here, too. I think that's one of the most impactful ways it's, it's really affected children, correct? Absolutely. Um, you know, this pandemic came out of nowhere. They say that none of us knew this was coming or could ever predict it, and that's you know, always up for further discussion, but we really just weren't ready in our school systems and our families and our homes um, for the extent that this pandemic would have um, and the effects this pandemic would have on all of those components. In the schools, as you all know, you know, when the pandemic started, there was a lockdown and suddenly everyone was shifted to home and that included kids being pulled out of their school systems. And the impact has gone from preschoolers, even daycares being closed, all the way up to our college-age kids, which we still consider pediatric. The impacts are different for each of those populations and very concerning. In the small kids, we see a loss of socialization. They were able to, you know, learn manners in preschool, learn to relate to each other, um, learn, learn how to support each other interact with each other, and their language skills are really built during those early years. And through two years of pandemic, we've lost some of that for those young children, and they're having to play catch-up. Our kindergarten teachers are having to spend their days just teaching kids how to sit in a chair and how to be nice to each other. You get into the older populations, um, into high school, for instance, they've lost all of those moments in high school. They lost proms, they lost clubs, their hands-on interactions with other class materials, for instance, have been lost. And then again, socialization, getting getting to understand how to work with other adults, how to speak to people, um, relationships were affected. And the teachers were similarly affected. They lost their jobs. I mean, they lost what they do. They lost um, their passion by losing those classrooms. They had to quickly, quickly um, convert to a virtual classroom type environment. My best friend in the world is a second grade teacher and has been doing it for over 25 years. And she had it, you know, she has it down. She knows what she's doing. And to suddenly have to jump into the virtual environment and suddenly have to find ways to communicate with children, not only virtually, but sometimes even, you know, behind a mask, depending on the situation or where the kids were, was incredibly difficult and a real challenge for all of our teachers to figure out how to provide the same sort of education that you can do one-on-one. So I think it's, I think we're going to see a long-term impact both academically and in mental health um, as we move forward. I think this is a big concern. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think, you know, I want to dive into some of those long-term sort of mental health effects and just long-term effects at all. I think you sort of um, alluded to a lot of that, just thinking about um, you know, kindergarten teachers have to go back and sort of reverse and 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 teach kids how to spend a lot of time teaching kids how to sit down and be kind to one another um, versus tackling other topics. And then the the long term effects of all of this st- 
strain and stress and this disruption in, in children's lives. Can you really dig in here and share with listeners what you're seeing in children and, and both in young adults, sort of the college age um, uh, pediatric uh, patients that, that, that you discussed? Sure. I think what we have, the evidence we have right now is what we would call anecdotal. So what we hear right now is stories from everyone. We hear stories from our friends, our own families are affected, um, stories coming out of the media about what's happening to our kids. There is an actual study being done that was announced in, in November by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease and the National Institute of Health, for instance. They're doing a three-year study on the impact of COVID-19 on the physical and mental health of our children. And I think that's going to be eye-opening. I think that it's a huge investment to dive into this and actually track the effects of COVID infection in our children over you know, a three-year period. There, there's other work being done on long COVID, for instance. So just starting with physical health, how these kids, the kids that have been infected by COVID, what long COVID does to them. Is it just a chronic cough or fatigue? It's, no, it also means absenteeism. Um, kids are not able to go to school and they're not feeling well. And then again, that impacts their families. Mom can't go to work if the kid can't go to school. So we see, we see these um, pretty long-term effects, specifically with mental health. What I'm experiencing um, in our community in Nevada is an increase in adolescents um, going into the ERs. And we have had some early studies on this that show even a 30%, and I think it might end up being more, but a 30% increase in ER evaluations for suicidal ideation and depression and anxiety. The concerning part of all of this is that pre-COVID, we were already looking at the fact that we were having huge numbers of teenagers experiencing depression and anxiety, and those numbers were tenfold increases over the past decade. And then we go into COVID. And that isolation and moving into even just a social media environment by yourself in your room we know that social media does not create social children, it creates isolation. And the numbers of children affected by depression or who are experiencing depression and anxiety has absolutely increased. We just don't know to what extent at this point without further investigation study. Again, this is all pretty much anecdotal, but we definitely locally on the ground saw increases in the number of kids coming in with self-harm behaviors and just feeling isolated and lonely and unable to express that in any other way than to act out and try to hurt themselves. And, you know, as a community and as a village, we really need to dig into that and do what we can to pull our kids back out of this, this hole that we've been in through this pandemic and getting them back to school is one of the best ways that we can do that. Just get them back with their friends, back with their teachers, eyes on them, away from their computers as much as possible, doing hands-on projects, um, for you know, schoolroom learning is going to be so important to get them back on track and catch them up. But it's going to take some time and patience and work. Yeah, and, and I want to talk now sort of about that work and about how um, we care for, for, for pediatric patients. And I'm thinking here, you know, like a lot of this comes down to or boils down to, of course, um, the effects of the pandemic are, are broad and, and national and global. Um, but the specific effects and how we address are care for them, I, I, I imagine we've got to kind of think local and think about what local communities need the most, right? So I guess the question I want to ask is, what is the benefit of regionalization of care and the importance of 
perhaps smaller pediatric intensive care units remaining in communities to support uh, local populations. Right, and there's lots, <clears throat> there's lots of steps to this. I, I kind of see this starting in the home with parents really investing in their kids and really paying attention to what's going on with them, really watching what they're doing with social media and um, interacting and you know getting out again. And then the next level is going to be the school environment, so the teachers having eyes on them and helping direct into programs or counseling or recommending therapies even if needed and interacting with the parents. And then you go into the therapy environment. What are therapists seeing? What are psychiatrists seeing? By the time you get to the pediatric intensive care environment, to that level of things, now you really have a population of children who has tried, have tried to self-harm or have suicidal ideation. And the first, and then from that, the next step again is putting, when you talk about acute inpatient management of mental health. And right now our entire country, probably the entire world, there's some countries doing this well, but we have a shortage of behavioral health, um, behavioral health in institutions, but also care. We have a shortage of behavioral health therapists, psychiatrists, psychologists, um, qualified to take care of pediatric patients. And now we have this huge number of kids coming into the system that, that need that care. So it starts on the local level um, with all of us investing in our local behavioral health programs, uh, making sure that we're recruiting and training even starting from scratch, therapists and psychiatrists, um, starting intensive outpatient programs as much as possible. We know that intensive outpatient programs show the best benefit for these for kids that are suffering from depression, anxiety, and other mental health disorders. And then also making sure that we have the facilities if they do acutely need an ICU or acute inpatient psychiatric facility. I believe in communities, um, when we talk about regionalization of care, I believe in communities taking care of their own children to the best extent that they can, to the level that you have specialists, whether that's pediatric or adult, but specialists who can care for that child and take care of their needs and provide that therapy and try those psychiatric services, same as I do for any of the medical specialties. But there is a benefit to a larger center. So for instance, a larger academic children's hospital, for instance, or a larger um, inpatient pediatric facility where you really attract the top um, level researchers, clinicians um, who are the most knowledgeable about pediatric mental health. And so there's, there's times when you actually do have to leave your community. When we talk about regionalization of care, the most common um, way I think about this is for cardiac care, cardiac surgery. It's hard to do cardiac surgery in a small town because you have to do enough surgeries to really be good at it. In a small town, you're not gonna see that many kids with a cardiac problem. So you want to regionalize that care and have those children go into a big cardiac ICU, for instance, in an established program with all of the safety and quality um, that you need for that child. And, this, and the same thing's probably true in mental health, but we also need to dive right back down to that local level, back to that housing, you know, that family level in the home. How do we educate our families, our parents, and how do we give them resources to start helping their children so it doesn't get to that level that now we're talking about sending them to an outside facility. Thank you so much for, for laying all that out. And at the top there, you sort of mentioned that um, the shortages around behavioral health professionals are really um, you know, amplifying this, this problem. And I wanna talk more about shortages. And broadly, I guess I just wanna ask how has the pandemic due to, I'm thinking here, of, you know, 
physician burnout, of course, and, and nursing shortages. How has that disrupted the, these um, pediatric intensive care units? Um, it hit us pretty hard and fast. You know, we all heard about it on the East Coast initially. Um, there was a call from the East Coast and from the New York area, can anyone come help? They were maxed out pretty quickly as far as um, medical services and, and care for COVID patients. And then behavioral health services came right after that. In, you know, in Nevada, where I am, we have 3 million people in Nevada. Most of those are in the Las Vegas area, and we have another million up here in the Reno area. And it, we really hung on through most of the pandemic, but as people burned out, as our healthcare teams just were put under so much stress and just started to look at what else can I do with my life, we did lose nurses and healthcare providers and therapists, you know, everyone down the chain. We've had, you know, a bit of attrition or a bit of just leaving this, the healthcare environment. And we've had to adjust as quickly as we can. But then we also have a certain number of beds that each of our hospital has. And so you combine those two things and you get into a surge, whether that was a COVID infection or a behavioral health surge, and we're all full. And I'll tell you here in Nevada, we had a point at which all of our Las Vegas hospitals were full as far as um, pediatric behavioral health. Um, the kids with severe depression and anxiety and with suicidal ideation and mental health concerns, they were no longer to, able to accept or care for any children with any mental health needs. <clears throat> then we ran into the same thing, excuse me, <clears throat> up here in the Reno area where we, we ran out of services and we even had a facility in town closed and that closed 90 beds for us. And we were left with just a few beds in one facility for those children that really needed that intensive environment. So it's been pretty scary. Like I have not been in a position as a physician to this point where I was not even just trying to send a child into an acute inpatient environment nearby, but even in the next state and hearing that they also didn't have beds. We've somehow as a community been able to come together and take care of everybody. But again, I worry that the care provided wasn't as high quality as it could have been and what the long-term effects are for the kids that went through that system during that time. I think. Um, between the staffing shortages and the bed shortages and just these big surges, these big waves that this pandemic created, we were all pretty much stressed as far as we could be. Again, we did our best, but I, I worry about the long-term effects of what, what we were able to provide. Yeah, I, I, and the challenges sort of keep coming um, in, in different ways. And the next challenge I want to talk about is sort of, you know, a, a recent study that found, um, you know, uh, the, the, the COVID childhood vaccine is offers significantly less protection against infection in, in kids ages 5 to 11. Um, I, I, I believe there is still protection against hospitalization, but um, little protection against infection, which I'm sure just makes the, the childhood vaccination um, situation even harder for, for pediatric providers. So can you weigh in on that? How, how are pediatric providers sort of handling that news? That's a really hot topic right now. Um, and I, I feel like normally, usually, our American Academy of Pediatrics, or our pediatric providers, and these big issues, usually we're on the same page as far as how we feel about um, you know, immunizations versus gun laws, et cetera. This has been a really, this has really split our community um, to, to get this new data coming out from the COVID vaccine. And part of the issue is that the Initial COVID vaccine, as we all know, it was pushed as fast as we could get it through the system. And, you know, a, a, a fairly large population was studied, but not as large as you'd optimally hope for. And the 
vaccine was studied during a time that the Delta variant of COVID-19 was out in the population. And again, at the time during the study, it, the COVID vaccine really seemed to protect children from that severe level of illness and from hospitalization and still provided really decent coverage of mild and moderate infection. And the numbers looked good and we pushed and we released that vaccine to you know, the five to 12 year old population and the 12 to 17 year old population, all of our pediatrics except for those under five. And everything looked good until Omicron hit. And with Omicron, just like in the adult population, we realized that our vaccine did not provide the level of coverage that we were all expecting. <clears throat> so I've got a little hoarse voice myself right now, coming off a month ago off of my own Omicron infection. And I was fully vaccinated, fully boosted. I followed all the rules. I protected myself for my N95. And I think that's part of the frustration is that we all did what we were asked to do. And yet still we have breakthrough, breakthrough infections with Omicron. And then when you see a study now that they're looking at it again as, as the vaccine is released and they're following these kids through the Omicron surge, they've realized now that it's not protecting them as much as they thought it, everyone thought it would. And so there's still a lot of breakthrough infection. Now, granted, we're not seeing hospitalization with Omicron, but we weren't really seeing that in kids up to that point anyway. We definitely had kids hospitalized, don't get me wrong, but um, they, they tended to do a little bit better than the adults as far as the level of hospitalization. Omicron's actually created more infection in the pediatric community. Again, not so much in the hospital, but we're, we're, all, we're all looking for something a little bit better. So we're waiting to see if we're going to be using higher doses. The adults COVID vaccine was 30 micrograms and the pediatric vaccine was 10 micrograms. So we're waiting for these questions to be answered. Do we need to give a 20 microgram dose or is it a, you know, a different schedule? Do we need to give four doses? It's just hard, and for parents, it's hard to hear all of this, all these questions, and hear the controversy within, you know, the healthcare environment when you're the one bringing your kid to the doctor and putting a shot in their arm. That is a big deal to ask your child to trust you and put a shot in their arm, and then to find out later maybe it didn't work as well as you thought is, is devastating. So I I encourage all parents to get all of the vaccines that they can for their children. All of these long-term vaccines we've had are very safe. There's just a lot of questions around this new one, and some pediatricians are struggling to recommend it right now, not knowing if it's going to protect us against further variants of the of of COVID-19. Yeah, Omicron has just been a was quite a frustrating variant, um, to, to say the least. And I just imagine from a messaging standpoint, like as you laid it all out, sort of the the ins and outs and the complexities of all of this, communicating that to parents is probably just really hard to walk them through that and, and have them understand everything, right? Absolutely. And a lot of us, you know, as pediatricians have our own kids and we're having to question our own decisions around vaccinating our own kids. So, and then you still got, you know, you still have little kids left completely exposed. You have a zero to five-year-old population that we've been promising, you know, every time the kids come into the office, we're promising it's coming, it's coming, we'll be able to protect your whole family. And then everything's just kind of on standby. And there are parents that are left with a family that has some little kids in it, and they're not sure what's going to happen. You know, if that is the next variant, as we know, Omicron did have more of a health effect on children. They're finding that um, pediatric immunity to COVID is a little bit less with each variant. So the first, you know, the original alpha, our kids seem to really fight off their immune systems. We're just primed to not be so infected and not get so sick with the original variant. 
And as we got out to Omicron, now we saw that shift from 4% of all symptomatic infections being kids to now over 30% or 27 to 30% of all infections being in pediatrics with symptoms. And that means that there's something different happening with the immune system with these later variants. So we have to be concerned about the next variants to come and are these going to have more of an effect on our kid, our child, um, and do we need to get a vaccine in their arm and will that vaccine work? So, you know, without scaring anybody, just the way the pandemic is, it's just we need to have our eyes on the research, we need to support all of the research being done around this vaccine, and we need to be transparent and keep talking about what are the risks and benefits, the benefits of getting the vaccine absolutely outweigh the risk of the vaccine. You know, the risks are very low around the COVID vaccine, so we are still very much encouraging the COVID vaccine. We're just all looking for a little bit better, and we're looking for the next thing to come out that shows that we have protected our children even better. Yeah, it's one of those things you certainly, we can't take take our eyes off of COVID every time you no. um, if you think there's there's light at the end of the tunnel. Um, it's got another trick up its sleeve. So, I mean, hopefully that's not the case, but uh, to, to your point, got to lock in, got to gotta watch what's happening. Um, Dr. Dieter, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you so far, but I, I, before I let you go, I, I want to get to a, a question about sort of long COVID in kids. Um, you know, can you talk about sort of the impact of multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children also and long COVID in kids, um, both of which I, I know affect families who need to stay home and care for their children. So can you just talk a little bit about that before we sign off? Sure. Um, I kind of, I said up to this point, I, I think I've learned more in the last two years of the pandemic than I have since medical school. I've had to re- read so much more and learn so much about these new problems coming up, these new diseases just when you think you have everything down after 20 plus years in pediatrics, something new comes along. And for us, that was MISV. So it's this inflammatory condition that tends to happen somewhere around six weeks. Numbers are four to eight weeks um, after having a COVID infection. There's something about the pediatric immune system and probably also in some adults too. There, there is an MISA also described in the adult population. But there's this inflammatory condition that occurs after that COVID infection, whether it's asymptomatic or symptomatic, that later these kids are presenting with pretty severe symptoms. And the most concerning symptoms were neurologic and cardiac. So kids coming in, having almost like a heart attack in front of you, having chest pain and having the muscle of their heart inflamed and infected and experiencing even heart failure. And that was a, you know, that was a big jump for all of us and an eye-opener. And, Luckily, even through social media, Facebook, Facebook groups, listservs, all of our all of our societies. So we have a society of critical care medicine. We were able to start this conversation kind of offline, you know, not in the media, between all of us, between all of the providers, which was which was a, a, actually an amazing thing to have this universe of social media in which we were able to interact and help each other out. Um, and we we diagnosed you know hundreds of kids with MISD. They all seem to be, once we figured out how to treat it and how to treat it effectively, these kids are doing much, much better. There was some mortality early on, but now the kids seem to be doing much, much better. But some of them are left with long-term problems, weakness, fatigue, and even some, um, some heart problems after having MISD. And then we are seeing kids just like adults with long COVID, where after the COVID infection is, is gone, you're no longer contagious. So after a couple of weeks, they're still having cough, they're still having fatigue, body aches, um, GI issues. The biggest thing that concerns us is this brain fog that's described 
Um, kids are just not able to focus, affecting their memory and affecting their ability to learn. And again, we're already in this pandemic age where kids are set back a little bit and um, trying to catch up. And then, you know, on top of that, you add something like long COVID where they're getting behind even more. And as I mentioned for the start of our conversation, whatever happens to your kids can affect you as, you know, as a wage earner trying to go to work. Suddenly your child isn't feeling good, needs to stay home. And we we're staying home too, to care for to care for our kids and potentially losing losing wages and potentially having an effect with our own employer uh, area of employment. So we're concerned about this. Um, there is active and ongoing there um, research around long COVID and it's affecting kids. We really don't know what the magic is yet. It does seem to go away within about four months. Seems to be a number being tossed around in kids right now that after about four months, most of those long term effects have dissipated and gone away. But uh, the the biggest thing is that we have to take these symptoms seriously. And when our children are complaining about kind of not feeling quite right or having memory issues or kind of feeling foggy or having body aches, we really need to listen to them because it might be that they're experiencing long COVID and we might need to go ahead and seek additional help for, help for that. Um, and then again, as a community, whatever we can do to support those families who are going through that, whether the adult has long COVID or the child has long COVID, we really need to support their healthcare needs and support their needs potentially to be home for a little while while they while they work through what what this disease is doing to them. And again, it's just a, a new thing in our in our medical history that we're having to learn about. Yeah, Dr. Dieter, thank you so much for for taking the time. Uh, it really, you know, a sobering conversation. There's a lot happening, but I think one of the encouraging things that that you shared with us is just. You're learning a lot. Everyone's learning a lot. And as, as the, the medical community and scientific community um, continue to learn more, you know, the, the better off we'll all be here. So I, I really appreciate all the work you do and, and the time you, you took to speak with me today. Thank you so much. No doubt. Thank you so much for, for discussing this with me today. I also want to thank our podcast sponsor, Pediatrics. Listener, to hear more podcasts from Beckers, go to beckerspodcast.com.